Yes, so um, we, we are looking at the Psalms, we continue to do so, and what I want to do tonight is to talk about actually one of those Psalms. Uh, are, we, are we working? Are we? Ah, um, talking about the Psalm that actually teaches us how to worship. You know, because I'm sure you know that the, the book of Psalms, we call it the hymn book or the song book of the Old Testament. Um, these are poems, but all of them actually um, used to have a musical score attached to that. You know, we don't tend to spend too much time singing the psalms, but at the end of the day, that is what the psalms is all about. Now, I want to take you back a little bit to the, to, um, the year 1741. In the year 1741, there was a man, his name was George Frederick Handel. Um, he was actually quite a rock star um, of the day and age in which he was living in as far as music um, presentations and musical composition is concerned. You know, with a hairstyle like that, you know, you definitely are dealing with a rock star. Um, but even though he was, he was born in Germany, he actually plied a lot of his musical trade in England um, and, and especially in Ireland. And one of the things that George Frederick Handel did, because in those days without television and the kind of media we have today, you know, having choirs perform and musical items performed was the way in which people were entertained. And so he was given a set of scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament scriptures surrounding the life of Jesus. And, you know, um, he was commissioned to, to write a, a, a musical piece celebrating the life of Jesus, telling the story of the life of Jesus. Um, and he was quite a musical genius. In 18 days, he composed what is called an oratorio, a three-hour musical piece for choir. He wrote all the scores, all the words. Um, you know, it, it would take three hours performed by a choir, mostly mass choirs, full orchestra, wrote the music for every single piece um, of that. And right in the middle, he came up with this marvelous song celebrating the life of Jesus. You might have heard it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. So, so George Frederick Handel composed what, was, what became known as the Hallelujah Chorus, right in the middle um, of that, um, that three-hour musical. You know, and in that Hallelujah Chorus, the word Hallelujah is sung at least 47 times um, throughout that, that, that musical song. And somehow in my mind, I imagine that what Handel was doing was actually reflecting on the psalm that we are going to be looking at tonight. And that's Psalm 150. Um, now, it is said that when the Hallelujah Chorus was performed on one occasion, King George II of England was present in the audience. And he was so taken up by this depiction through music of um, the life and the majesty of Jesus that he decided to stand in honor of the majesty of that song, and the whole audience, no, not wanting to embarrass him, decided to stand along with him. So today, when Handel's Messiah is being performed, and when they come to the Hallelujah Chorus, the, tra the tradition is that the entire audience stand. So we're going to stand tonight as we read the scripture together as our own Hallelujah Chorus. Will you do that with me? Let's stand, and let's 
proclaim the psalm together. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and pipe. Praise Him with the clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well done. Please be seated. <laughs> now, because I'm doing the last psalm, this doesn't mean it's the end of the series. You know, it just happens to be the last one. But Psalm 150 is one of a number of what are called hallelujah psalms. All that happens over here in the NIV is that the NIV actually translates what we know the word hallelujah is and what it means. It means praise the Lord. But you know, as I look at Psalm 150, this great psalm of praise, this great hallelujah psalm like many of the other hallelujah psalms, in fact there are four collections within the book of Psalms that can be described as hallelujah songs that very liberally uses the word, word hallelujah either at the beginning of the psalm or throughout the psalm. Um, and so that is what Psalm 150 does. And in fact, there's a sense in which I think we can break down Psalm 150 um, in a way that it teaches us how to worship God so that if ever, you know, we are wondering what's the best way within which to do it, why not be guided by the Psalms? So verse 1 actually teaches us two things. It teaches us, first of all, the what, and then secondly, the who of worship. Verses 2 teaches us the why of worship. Verses 3, 4, and 5 teaches us the whereby of worship. You know, I had to kind of press the alliteration here. Um, and then finally, verse 6 teaches us the width of worship. But I think it's important for us as we think about that to just remind ourselves, you know, as Julia did not too long ago, uh, what exactly is worship? You know, because sometimes I think we, we have certain assumptions as to what worship is. Now, just in terms of a quick definition, our English word worship is actually derived and is an abbreviation of the word worship. It actually describes the way in which we ought to respond to God because of who God is. And so there is a real sense in which worship is the experience of recognizing the holiness and the majesty of God and responding to that in loving obedience. You will notice nowhere in there did I say anything about music or anything about song. Because biblically speaking, if we understand what worship is all about, worship is much broader and much bigger as to what we often reduce it to, and that is about singing about God. But it does involve that. And so that, in essence, is what worship is. Now we come into the psalm, and the psalm then begins to tell us aspects about worship. What is worship? Well, essentially, and this is one of the dominant ways within which the Psalms teach us how to worship, that it involves praise. And this is where we come to this word, the word hallelujah. You know, we use it in English, but it's actually a word that directly comes out of the Hebrew of the, um, of the Psalm um, that means 
praise the Lord. And that's why I said what, what the NIV does in Psalm 150 is to every time the word hallelujah occurs, which is actually a Hebrew word, it translates it for us, and that's what it means. Uh, it consists of two words, the word halal, um, not halal food. <laughs> it's the Hebrew word for praise with a contracted, a shortened form of God's name, God's covenant name that we um, tend to pronounce it in English as Yahweh, um, uh, an abbreviated form of that. So it literally means to praise the Lord. But what does praise mean? You know, it's the old pat on the back that we sometimes like. You know, the nice word that is said to us, the compliment that is given to us. But in a true biblical sense, praise is actually recognizing the worth of somebody. Recognizing the worth of God. Being able to look at God and to understand who God is. And because of, you know, something or, some, or something about that person or about God, you, you, you look at that and you recognize that there is something worthy that needs to be uplifted or need to be celebrated. And so what we do is we say we render tribute. You know, we, we pay homage to that. So this Old Testament word, the word used for praise over here, um, the word halal, literally means to celebrate. And there's a sense in which, you know, when we think about worship, you know, it means that. Now what we tend to do is, you know, we tend to categorize songs as worship songs and as praise songs. Now that's not actually publicly accurate, you know, um, because praise is actually just a form of worship. You know, so worship is not the slow songs that we sing. Worship is the many things that we do in order to um, actually render to God um, the celebration and the worth um, that, is, that is due to Him. And so in the Psalms, you find a number of words, a number of synonyms um, that can be other ways of rendering praise. You know, so throughout the Psalms, you hear words like to bless, to exalt, to extol, even to shout. All of those words are just other ways of saying we give praise to God. So, so that is what Psalm 150 is teaching us. But the second thing that this first verse is also teaching us is what we call the who of worship. Praise the Lord. Yes, you know, we, we are praising the Lord. That's captured within the word. But now the psalmist goes further and he says, praise God. And where do we praise Him? Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. I think we need to remind ourselves that when we do praise or when we sing songs of praise, we're doing it to the audience of one. You know, sometimes we, I think in the way in which we worship, we tend not to focus where the focus should be, and that is on God. You know, it can very easily be reflected somewhere else. So if you think about it, um, think about, say for example, an orchestra. I don't know if you've ever been to an orchestral performance. You know, it's wonderful. You have the conductor standing up on the stage and you have the orchestra. There's a sense in which those who lead worship is the conductor. But the ones that are the orchestra is us. And in the audience, it's not us, but there's actually only one person in the audience, and that 
person in the audience is God. And that is what we mean when we say that worship is actually for the audience of one. John Wesley, I think, got it right when he put it this way. Have and I to God in every word that you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. You know, let us not allow worship to become something like this. The, the second thing, um, the next thing that I, I believe the psalm teaches us is the why of worship. Verse 2 tells us, praise Him for His acts of power, praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Why is it that we worship? Well, the psalm is actually telling us, and let me just run ahead, the why of worship. The psalm is telling us that we are worshiping God because of His nature, because of His character, um, and because of who He is. You see, there's a sense in which what the psalmist is telling us here is that because He alone is able to do what He is able to do. You know, and I was trying to think, you know, is there maybe a nice quote um, that goes with that? And I was looking around and I came across this nice quote. We worship because I am not and because He is. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who said that. I think it was him who said that. Um, <laughs> but the psalm, the psalm, psalm 150 also teach us the whereby of worship. Verses 3, 4, and 5 introduces us to what it might have sounded like, what it might have been like, you know, when one was part of a worship experience in the Old Testament. So what does it say over there? Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with a clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. So when we worship, we need to recognize that worship is not just about music. Worship is not just about songs. Worship is not just about dance. Worship is not just about church services. And worship is not just about feelings. But when we get the right perspective about worship, then we will understand that worship may involve, and it does involve, music, songs, dance, church services, as well as feelings. And so let's maybe just take a pause over here. You know, because I think when we come to understand what worship is truly all about biblically, then um, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what do we sing? And the Bible teaches us that. Songs are varying styles and instrumentation as is celebrated here in the songs, but also to make sure that the songs are theologically sound, that the songs has to focus correct attention upon God. I like the New Testament passage that emphasizes this. When it says, speak to one another with psalms, that is the book of psalms, but also with hymns. Those were particularly didactically styled renditions of who God is put to music. You know, we don't, we don't sing too many hymns today, or rather old style hymns. We've got new style hymns, you know, and then singing spiritual songs and make music in your heart to the Lord. And then finally, the Psalms teach us what the width of worship is all about. 
Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In other words, what the psalm is doing over here, it's telling us what the extent of worship is. What the desire of God is all about. So we can't just leave it there in the Old Testament. I believe we need to kind of draw them together. What this true meaning of worship is all about that is inspired by the Psalms, but then is also emphasized and underlined in the New Testament. I think Romans chapter 12 verse 1 captures this very well. When the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, there are generally two verbs that is used to describe worship. The first one that is used a lot in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, literally means to bow down or to prostrate yourself in humility to God. Like Psalm 95 or 6 says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. The second word that is often used in the Bible to describe worship occurs in the verse that we have looked at, Psalm, um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship or spiritual act of service. And that is essentially what worship is all about. It is the giving of ourselves. We remind ourselves as well that Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 23 to verse 24, um, told us as to what true worship is all about. That we worship in spirit and in truth. And what does that mean? Well, worshiping in spirit and in truth means that it's the Holy Spirit that inspires true worship. That it is through the Holy Spirit that we must confess Jesus as Lord. That is what it means to worship God in truth. To do so truthfully because Jesus declared himself to be, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And that the Holy Spirit provides the vitality in our relationship with God. So then finally, worship, we may conclude, requires our submission to God. Worship confronts us with the glory of God when we understand who He is. And it is out of that that we then focus our attention upon Him and we bestow upon Him the worth that He alone is due. Worship experiences should lead us to adoration and praise. But the Psalms also contain Psalms of lament that we are able to mourn before the Lord. And that finally... Worship then requires a response. And so, with this whirlwind tour through, <laughs> through Psalm 150, I hope that the psalm indeed inspires us that we will be able to worship God in spirit and in truth.